This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is Nabil Memo, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Luke North, coming from Silverthorne, Colorado. Luke, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us. Let's start with your background. Uh, man, hopefully we got a lot of time. <laughs> um, I, uh, I graduated high school early, and um, uh, networking was a passion of mine. So I was uh, uh, pretty young, and I actually got my CCNA, I believe, at 15. Uh, and that was the Cisco certification. And uh, that opened up the door where, at the time, I believe it was US West was just rolling out a DSL. This was the uh, advent of sort of broadband internet, where you're moving from dial-up to actual sort of always on connected broadband. And um, I think a recruiter just found out I had that certification and uh, reached out to me. I was in high school. And uh, all of a sudden, I was making more money than both my parents combined as a junior in high school, uh, working uh, six hours a day after football practice in Portland, Oregon, uh, helping roll out um, uh, the broadband. It was little Cisco routers, if I remember right, Cisco 605s. Um, and th- and that, that created a pretty cool little uh, uh, gig for me. Uh, I'd say right around about uh, 18, um, a company called uh, Service Corporation this is right in the middle of the dot-com boom, uh, right before the dot-com bust, uh, picked me up because uh, HIPAA compliancy, the healthcare space was becoming big. And all these hospitals and all these big healthcare systems needed to start getting HIPAA compliant. So I was going around reviewing their technology and I was traveling so much that uh, I, I had to have sort of special prepaid phone, uh, phone cards and prepaid uh, uh, cards with Avis so that I could even rent a car to be able to drive because they wouldn't rent to you if you were under 25 and we had a, like a $25,000 prepaid service. Um, that was making my employer at the time so uh, annoyed that they actually flew me to Colorado and moved me out here. And I think I'm literally 18 at this point. Um, the dot-com bust was starting to happen, but there was the Google of our time, Silicon Graphics. Um, was uh, still in the middle of their boom. And uh, I call it the Google of their time because literally Google's campus is now Silicon Graphics campus. They actually bought the campus when Silicon Graphics went under. Uh, So all of a sudden at 19, I find myself with top secret clearance uh, building out supercomputers for the government and for institutions uh, utilizing my networking background and really was sort of the advent of containers and and distributed computing. Um, And that really sort of broadened my horizons to... Uh, I think give me the ego that I could kind of do anything. You have an ego? <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't believe it. <laughs> uh, at, at, at the time, it was literally like there wasn't a, a technology challenge I couldn't tackle and wrap my arms around. Um, quickly, one of the companies that needed me to build uh, and work on their supercomputing was uh, Marsh McClellan. They're a big parent company. I believe they're one of the oldest companies in the world. They own Mercer and Putnam and all these financial companies. And they had analytics trading and these supercomputers. And uh, I, I started working with them, and then I realized that there had to be a whole security arm to what I was doing around networking and what I was doing around supercomputing. So um, uh, right around this time, so 17, 18, I went and uh, got my certification for uh, CISSP. It's sort of the predominant uh, information uh, security certification. And then a new certification came right out called AISSP, the architecture version of it. And I literally have, I think, number 10 when it comes to the numbered certificate on that. 
if I may just bring this up, and I think we just captured this, that you were one of the youngest guys to get your certification, the CISSP at the age of 15? Uh, no, it was it was 17, and um, it was kind of interesting. They sent me the letter saying I'd received it, and then they sent me a letter saying that they were changing the rules uh, requiring, I believe, five years of work experience from there on so that nobody else will get anywhere near my age. And it's a pretty cool little email I can sure bring up. Sure, yeah. <laughs> if, if, only, if only we had a Guinness Book of World Records for our, for our crazy business, then uh, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Norris. Yeah, I, I might have something there. Um, I mean, this was really cool because now I'm effectively being flown around on a private airplane with the CEO and CTOs of uh, Marsh McClellan and their parent companies kind of being the, the main security guy for one of the world's largest companies. Uh, really, as you know, security and infrastructure was getting sexy. And, um, and for me, just to be at that age and to see sort of that level of business acumen. Um, one of the cool things that happened at that time is Marsh owned a company called Kroll, Kroll was in Colorado. Uh, Marsh is obviously a big um, uh, New York institution. And they both utilize SunGuard availability for disaster recovery and for primary hosting. Uh, SunGuard goes and buys a company called Inflow in Colorado. And uh, since I had known both the leadership teams, uh, I was asked to apply to run their operations and integration, bringing those two large companies together. Keep in mind, I believe I'm 19 or 20 at this point, and I have you know 700 staff members now working. And for by me. my count, and by my count, you're 19 or 20. This is job number six. Um, at several of them. <laughs> I was, I, I was, I was typically, I'd say nine months to a year was the max I was staying in any one place. That, that's for sure. Um, so this was just a, an amazing opportunity for me to take on not only um, leadership, but also this was the first time I was really running critical infrastructure at a global scale. I mean, SunGuard at this point had you know five and a half million square feet of raised floor data centers in something like 14 countries, uh, 24-7 around-the-clock operations, uh, and then to integrate that with the startup that we had, Inflow, uh, it was just an amazing, amazing sort of tech feat that we were able to pull off. And it was an amazing um, management feat. You know, I remember one of my employees, I took the lunch, I think he was 50. And he was just laughing the whole time that his boss's boss is 20 years old and he's having to sit across the table type scenario. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think nothing sort of um, exemplified the dot-com boom better than that, but also nothing exemplified sort of the ability for somebody who had real good aptitude and really wanted to sort of put the pedal down to learn and to work, uh, I was able to take advantage of everything during that time. So it could, could be more uh, gratitude. Uh, just to sort of quickly fast forward to what we're doing now. So I saw SunGuard had two imperative uh, blockers and there were two things in the uh, industry that were gonna transform SunGuard. And I didn't think SunGuard uh, was nimble enough to take that transformation. Uh, the first was they leveraged public bonds to buy physical assets and they applied those physical assets to disaster recovery contracts. And this was about 80% of their business. So they would literally buy an HP DL460 and put that on a paper contract. So a company with a disaster recovery could call up SunGuard and say, I want that exact server in this exact location at this particular time. So I saw that as a non-multi-tenant, non-sort of scalable business model, and the whole industry was moving this way. Keep in mind, at this time, the largest cloud company is actually Verizon Telecom, um, and they're literally running the biggest private and public cloud services out there. So I, I realized that they didn't have a multi-tenant model. Second, uh, this little company, VMware, had just gone public. So it's like 2006, 2007. Um, 
And we're looking at, uh, sorry, uh, this little company VMware was about to go public. It was 2005. Uh, and, and they were transforming the whole idea that you don't have to have branded hardware. You don't have to have named solutions, especially around the Intel chipset. And uh, since SunGuard had that requirement to raise money based off of assets, I just didn't think their business model could pivot. Uh, I honestly went to the head of operations, sorry, the uh, uh, CEO effectively for SunGuard Availability. SunGuard is a large company with multiple EUs. Uh, told him that I was interested in starting up my own business, and uh, he let me out of my um, non-compete. He actually became my first investor. He became my first board member uh, and helped me get my company off the ground. So that was uh, 2006. Uh, from 2006, I thought I was the smartest guy ever, uh, and then the crash happened. Uh, 2009, the crash got even worse. Uh, I'm not rich, so bootstrapping the company was nearly impossible. Uh, I think I met Phil probably 2010-11, may I add, um, as we we're starting to expand past our data center. Uh, my initial business idea was how do I take the meet me room concept uh, and for people uh, of the podcast, the meet me room is how do you take telcos and large businesses that want to interconnect together just by ordering cross connects and actually make that much larger than just the network stack, but the storage stack and the CPU stack. I actually took over as I was bootstrapping my company, um, a small meet me room company in Colorado called Confluent. Uh, Alf Gardner's company, uh, Phil, if you remember Alf, um, he started to pay me. How do you forget a name like Alf? You don't forget a name like Alf or Alf himself. He was just talking to me on LinkedIn, so shout out Alf. Um, you, you, he was paying me to run the operations of his company underneath my own brand, and I was doing the network side in a virtual meet me room, and then a virtual networking stack, a virtual server stack, and a virtual storage stack. And um, this helped me, A, bootstrap my own company, because now I could hire staff to help run Alf's company and my company. Uh, Alf liked it because he got a professional operator underneath him that could sort of do the day-to-day. -day. He could focus on sales. And something really funky happened. Um, I was actually in Frisco, Colorado, right around the corner. And uh, I came up with a couple of concepts that I was seeing each one of my customers run into that was problematic. And effectively, they would have a configuration that they would want and another customer would, would have a configuration that was unique that they would want, but there would be a part that's not unique that would overlap. And whether it was an IP address or a VLAN or, or a special need, and I, I sketched out a construct that if I could have another identifier above a VLAN, I could effectively allow all the customers that have their overlapping needs, bring your own IP, not have to change your configuration. Uh, I actually filed that patent in 2009. Uh, and today, uh, just this week, uh, we just got our 10th continuation patent filed off of that. So if you think about it, fast forwarding now about four years, I'm able to take storage and connect it to Amazon, Microsoft, and Google so that that storage is logically and physically running in all three of those clouds simultaneously. And this is one copy of storage. And we're just doing incredibly cool things. Uh, and our customers are literally changing the world based off of this technology. And um, you know, I call it a 10-year overnight success at this point because we have Dell and VMware and very large partners supporting us. Uh, but the, the technology and just the, the impact we're making on the business community and honestly, the world at large right now between COVID, between cancer research, between autonomous driving, um, I don't think our industry has ever been more sexy. I don't think our impact has ever been more real. Uh, and um, uh, just literally my desire to get out of bed every day and sort of work towards this has just never been more passionate. 
By my count, uh, if you're keeping track at home, Luke is now 22 and a half years old. Um, uh, let me uh, let me back up for a second. So, um, you know, you mentioned- I apologize that, on the rant. I, I love really, talking about my fun. business. I mean, look, you're, uh, uh, I don't think anybody will discount your passion. You are clearly uh, passionate. There's a, there's a you know, passion, fanaticism. Fine, I don't know. It's one yeah. of those. You know, one of those. You're, you're excited. Um, which is usually my role in the podcast. Um, the um, if you go back, you mentioned that at an early age you were interested in in networking coming out of high school. Uh, it doesn't sound like your parents had like a particularly technical technical background um, uh, at all. So you know how do, how does that happen? Like how did you? Is it just because that's what was going on in the world at that time, um, or did you find yourself at an early age just liking buttons? Yeah. No. My. Uh, 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 in high school, I think my dad managed a Lazy Boy uh, a furniture factory, and my mom managed uh, bagel stores. So I got free pizza bagels. I, w- I was pretty excited about that. Um, honestly, I think a lot of the networking passion actually, uh, and this is one of the geekier things I probably have said, uh, spun from my need, my visceral need to lower my latency uh, when it came to playing uh, uh, Doom uh, and uh, 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 the follow-on uh, games of Doom uh, in the multiplayer scenario. I had figured out several things. First, I had figured out the the impact of the local loop latency. And at the time, DSL and dial-ups were the worst. And uh, I had moved to ISDN and other technologies to lower that local loop latency. Then I had actually started getting into early programming language. And I was actually teaching my computer to skip frames. So it was actually not sending a requirement to the BBS server or to the early internet server to actually have every single frame because since I couldn't keep up with every frame by not even asking it to do that, I was making my service more uh, smooth and I was lowering my latency. Therefore, my reaction time to shoot people, you know, frag people was higher. Uh, and I believe that's truly how it all sort of spawned out. Uh, I will. I will make sure that I don't uh, force my son to to stop playing Minecraft in the morning, knowing that you know at at some point maybe that will dovetail into a career with uh, you know patents and 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 multi tenant, multi cloud storage, blah blah blahs that uh, that Luke has uh, has since invented. So anytime you see anyone uh, Luke on LinkedIn saying that he's flying around the world in Michael Dell's private jet, you know. That while he has the biggest ego in the world, he's just a little boy still playing Doom in his basement. And that's the only reason why uh, we're here today. I I, I kid you not. It was my kid's birthday over the weekend. I made sure we all had brand new uh, computers to play Valorant, the new sort of first-person shooter together. Yes, it's a little family of (laughs) video game shooters right here. So what would you say over the course of your career uh, would be one unique skill that has helped you to be successful? Um, I I say this actually a lot. uh, I I do a a weekly founder's email to my company. um, And uh, I'm an entrepreneur's organization. I do a lot of speeches to budding entrepreneurs. I I think there's um, one thing that's helped me more than anything. And it is, um, it it can be said two ways. I, I don't want to turn people off. So the first way you would say it is a stoic mindset. The second way you would say it is an open mindset. Uh, Michael Dell actually uh, has a saying where he says it's an opportunistic or, or um, um, happy mindset. He doesn't want to look sort of towards the negative. And, and what I mean by that is I don't let the hard things in life uh, overcome me. I try to break them down. It's sort of how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. You look at the big problems. You look at the major things that impact you. They all look like elephants. But if you break it down into sort of one bite at a time, you can do it. 
And then the, 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 the more tangible sort of stoic mindset of it all, and, and I'm, I'm a very, very big believer in this, is uh, I, I try not to interpret the way events and issues, whether positive or negative, uh, are. Uh, so, 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 and I try to just look at them to what they are at the tangible level. So what I mean by that is I, I didn't see the, like the investment from Michael Dell. I didn't see that as me finally getting sort of my come up ends or, or getting validation. I just saw it as a rich guy giving me some cash because it made sense for his organization. And if you keep breaking it down like that, it, it's tangible. You can look at how you can take actions on it. You can not be overwhelmed by it. Um, I wake up and I have a list every day. In fact, I require my staff, uh, they do a top five and top one of five for the week. So what's the top one thing you got to do? And what's the five things you got to do this week? And then every day they post in Slack how they're making progress on that particular stuff. And it's really just to instill that mindset, even into sort of the leadership of the organization, uh, all the way down to the individual staff members do that at a, a particular level as well. And, and I think that one mindset, that open mindset, the fact that there's never a, a close pie, the pie only gets bigger, the more people you bring in, and the problems that are there, you can always tackle them if you break them down. It's by far the biggest thing that's impacted my career. Well, that's just the, the mankind in our psychology as well, right? You've got to think positive. The glass is always half full, not half empty. Yep. Absolutely. Again, Obviously, easy to COVID. say when you wake up in Hawaii every day. Yeah, it's very easy to say. In Colorado, may I add. <laughs> oh, God. This is the most symmetrical podcast we've ever had. <laughs> also, probably from a hair perspective. Really good hair, somewhat nice hair, and then no hair. Um, I mean, you try to be a little bit self-effacing, but I'm not sure that you are the in-between between me and the I mean, there's, there's plenty of hair on that head. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, what was your turning point that you realized this? Because everybody, and, and particularly in this day and age and, and the time that we're in, everybody's struggling with the idea that the glass is half full. So let's start with the turning point that you started realizing you're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. There is a lot of opportunity. What was that turning point? You know, I'd like to say it was something miraculous. It was honestly, I graduated high school early and I had one class to take. Um, this is while I'm, I'm working for US West. And it was a philosophy class and that instructor, um, really introduced me to sort of stoicism, uh, Marcus Aurelius, um, and just everything involved there. And honestly, I've been a, a student ever since. And I think maybe he got me at a very, you know, pressionable time. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest, it was just an absolute turning point uh, in that. And I know a lot of people sort of see it as a religion. I don't, I see it as sort of a, a philosophy. Uh, so that's why I have the two different sayings of the mindset. Um, but ever since it's really been sort of the driving force in everything I do. Um, is there is there something if you if you had to go back if you had to look at you know we all have you know regrets and mistakes that we've made or we wish we we had done something uh, differently if you had to go back and look throughout your career uh, about something that uh, that you would have done differently what what do you think that that would have been? Oh if man, anything? yeah, that, that's probably a whole another podcast in its own right. To be honest, um, uh. I, I, I do to some extent, and I won't let my kids do this, uh, you know, I skipped college, and I definitely want my kids to have that, um, and it's not about the learning, it's not about the, um, you know, growing up to, to leave home, I, I did that, and I did that transition very well, it's the uh, camaraderie, it's the people, it's the ecosystem that you get entrenched in in college, uh, and I think I definitely missed out on that, uh, sort of taking the path that I took. Um, furthermore, I think I made my life harder 
on multiple levels. Uh, and everything we talked about uh, on my career was only talking about the positives, obviously. We could talk about the negatives. Um, but I think my zest to constantly hop companies, my zest to uh, take on that next challenge, in a lot of cases, always put me behind the eight ball where I was having to do Herculean work to prove myself in that role, in that position, the reason I jumped. And I, I think in a lot of cases, uh, there's much easier paths to sort of take on that on uh, without just taking on the biggest challenge you can and chopping the elephant up into bites and seeing if you can eat an elephant as fast as possible. You might just decide that you don't need to actually eat a whole elephant. Yes, you might just actually decide that. <laughs> so, so one of the things that we have actually noticed in releasing these 20 podcasts over the last few months is that a lot of our guests have not had the opportunity to go to college. They ended up choosing selecting a career path versus a college degree. Thereafter, you, you, and, and, and when you look around in the, in the market in general as well, I mean, some of the biggest leaders in the space, they don't have college degrees and they chose this path. From a psychological perspective or the behavior or the exposure, what do you think is the driving factor for a kid to go in that direction? I mean, the, the opportunity wasn't exactly afforded to me from a finance standpoint and like I said I was you know my first job I was making more than both my parents combined so it wasn't like they had the money or anything else at one point actually I thought I was going to get a uh, football scholarship uh, I, I actually tried out for the team um, <laughs> I remember the first play of the first day of pads I got hit so hard by a guy about 150 pounds heavier than me that I realized there was no way in heck I was going to, uh, A, make the team, or B, be an athlete that was going to stay on the team. So I, I got off quick, let me tell you. Um, so I, I think that there is, though, a certain level of success that is required to have a chip on your shoulder. Uh, I know Phil has like four. So um, you, you have to have something that drives you. You have to have something that pushes you to work beyond and above sort of that normality. And, and that typically is a chip. And that chip could be growing up without, you know, all the um, uh, silver spoons of a college education or the capability of having one. It could be, in my case, I'm severely dyslexic. Uh, uh, if Phil can attest to this, if you text me, it's pretty much you need a dictionary uh, that's called a Lucanism or something to convert it. Um, so I, I had several of those sort of chips on my shoulders and sort of things I needed to prove, uh, not just for myself, but for the uh, external uh, community. And I think that's a large driver of my success. You know, I think the, um, uh, well, first of all, uh, let, me, let me let me back up. I can attest to the fact that uh, uh, Luke's texts are, are like Ill, completely illegible, um, but the um, and my chips are all faking until you make it. I mean, it's just not. I have uh, I, my my ego is completely manufactured, and uh, and I cry myself to sleep every night waiting until somebody exposes me for the complete fraud that I am. But um, I will say this, and I totally agree with your notion about you know wanting your kids to go to to have the college experience really more from a social construct standpoint and being able to achieve that level of independence and be on their own uh versus versus not and if there's one thing that i think is true about those 70 percent of the people that have been on our podcast and the bill gates of the world and the mark zuckerbergs of the world is you guys all have something in common which is gosh the social awkwardness is absurd you guys are so weird um, where us college folks, I mean, we just had to learn how to, how to, how to, um, just 
you know, negotiate our own weird personalities with other people and live with other people that were strange. I mean, who goes from, you know, 16 years old being uh, in the basement in Portland, Oregon to draw, flying around on private jets? Of course you have chips on your shoulders. I'm surprised you even have shoulders. Um, anyway, that's my diatribe. So based on that. He's frozen again. <laughs> Wait, perfect. I'm gonna get a, let me get a snapshot with that. I mean, I caught him at the right time. At least he was smiling. Jesus Christ. I literally got the end of your rant. I got uh, a little laughing, and then I felt like you guys cut me off. So that's Yeah, awesome. well, it's just that that would have been perfect to, for, for us to just end the show, like a mic drop. Yes. You are awkward. I am better. Um, uh, okay. Uh, we're recording again. The um, uh, I don't know. Take it. We left, we left it off, uh, me ranting about how the social construct, the, uh, uh, the, the social elements of going to college are the real benefit. Um, and, um, and, you know, the, the folks that we had on the podcast, you know, um, uh, the Lukes, uh, along with the Mark Zuckerbergs and, and, and all those guys that you mentioned, have some element of social awkwardness to them that, you know, they have to somehow get over. Um, you know, later in life as they progress to their career. So I, I certainly agree with the idea of, you know, college being, you know, more of a social um, requirement than it is, you know, for, for particular, um, uh, 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 for, than it is for a particular curriculum. Uh, so that's where we ended up. I will take that one step further um, by, by suggesting that in the time that we're in today with, uh, you know, all of these colleges now going virtual uh, or starting out in person and then moving to virtual, you know, this, this kind of COVID-19 thing. Um, I fear for the fact that that social element of college, that social element of going away to college has been disrupted in a way that, you know, might not be as you know, uh, seamless as it was when, when I went to college. I was the first graduating class of the millennium. I graduated in 2000. Um, uh, I, I wear it proudly. Um, but, you know, how does, that, how does that look going forward? How are our, our kids going to go to school? Is it, just gonna, is it one day just going to go back to the way it was? I mean, I assume to a certain extent it will. Um, but do you think that's, that's been impacted? Uh, oddly enough, so I had uh, um, two of my nephews and one of my nieces go to college this semester. So it, it, it's the start. And I'd say uh, one of them got to go to a small liberal school out east. The other two are going to CU here. Uh, and even though they are in a dorm setting, they have one class in person and the rest they take from their dorm. Uh, and they can't do any of the social functions. Uh, Boulder shuts down parties. Boulder doesn't allow congregations outside of greater than 10 people. To, to be honest, it's a, at this point, it's a near waste of money because, you know, both of these kids, by the way, are brilliant. They don't need higher education to teach them sort of what they need to know to, you know, be successful in life. And the social aspect is just completely missing. Will it come back? I, I got to imagine it's all going to come back to some level, some form. Um, but I, I think we're also inherently changed for a very long time. Uh, the concept that, you know, COVID vaccine is going to come out and we're all going to be just fine. Uh, I think this is the tip of the iceberg of just social and economic changes that we're going to have to make as a society over the next 10, 20 years. And, and, and that, I think that's something we have to come to terms with. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to suggest that, you know, you have the choice between going to college or not going to college, or maybe you don't. But you know, there is this permanently, it seems like a permanently disrupted at least, you know, generation of, of college students um, that, that, you know, are, 
it's just we're going to have to make sure that we are focusing on um, trying to enable them socially in the same way that, you know, when you have really young kids like I do, you want to kind of encourage social interaction so they're, you know, they don't, they don't, you know, create their own uh, little bubble like we've all been forced to create now. And and I don't think there's a recognition yet of the kind of uh, social, emotional, psychological tolls that this is going to take not just uh, on on our youngest kids or uh, the, the older generation that, that feels kind of trapped, but on the formative you know, young adults that are not going to have the same freedoms that that we you know took for granted um, not so long ago. Yeah, I mean, just just to put a bow on that. If I didn't have you know YPO, Young Professionals Organization, and EO, uh, I, I definitely think I would have overall missed out on that. I wouldn't have the support network to push through a lot of the problems socially and business wise. Um, a lot of those things I just gather you get from college. I, I got sort of in my postdoctorate <laughs> type scenario after I had already uh, uh, got the facts of life, uh, you know, hit me upside the head and I started a company. Then I finally got that social interaction and support group. Let the record show that uh, Luke thinks he's got a doctorate. <laughs> I do have an honorary uh, master's, but that's a different story. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> With COVID transforming our lives, how has it affected you with your work and your organization? Yeah, I mean that's 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 definitely a you know top top of mind question. So I mean personally, I was telling you guys before, um, uh, the wife and I rented our house in Denver and rented a place in the mountains. And you know, COVID, uh, the pause that COVID has taken, the enablement of the remote workforce uh, that it's rapidly accelerated has really enabled that. So uh, you know, I'm able to wake up every morning, go for a five or ten mile hike. Uh, and still get back to my desk and, and talk to Europe, which is typically what I do. I, I start my day, my European operations, and then move uh, you know, west. And that's just a transformative piece. We had a, a light work-from-home culture, but you know, overnight we transitioned to a full work-from-home culture. Uh, and, and it's been hard. We look forward to the days when we can go back to an office one or two days a week. Uh, we have a very collaborative, open culture uh, that requires you know, debates and requires whiteboarding sessions. And we're always pushing the limit. And, and we miss those kind of things. In fact, there's literally a request here. One of my groups wants to do an offsite. Uh, and I was asking, how could they be further offsite than they currently are? Does, does he mean he wants an in-person uh, meeting? Uh, offsite, uh, offsite requires that there's such a thing as an onsite. Yes, exactly. So uh, that, that, that's an interesting little debate we have. So from a culture, um, like I said, I, I think I've been able to take a pause back. I was literally doing day flights to Germany. I would fall asleep Sunday at 5 p.m., you know, take a pill on an airplane, wake up, have a full day in Germany, uh, get on a plane, land in France, uh, sleep, get on another plane, land in uh, 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 Spain, and then typically either come home from Spain or Europe. And that was a typical every other week scenario for me. And flying out to see Phil, I, I've even done uh, overnights to uh, New York, uh, had a, a dinner with Phil, and then flew back the same night. So that hectic pace that requirement in in, in all fairness that's because you've been banned from most of the hotels in new york that's true too that's absolutely true so i mean just that 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 absolutely hectic lifestyle uh um the idea that you can only close you know large deals million dollar deals by pressing flesh this has absolutely just turned that on its ear uh we're we've never done more business with larger organizations faster than we are uh, right now and we're doing it completely remotely and do you think that's permanently disrupted? Are you ever going to get back on a plane in that same scale? Has, has the whole world kind of prioritized business travel uh, or deprioritized business travel? And, and to a certain extent, you know, um, it's become acceptable to do those things virtually. Why would you go back to the travel? It, it just it, it's so uh, physically taxing and, you know, 
not just physically taxing uh, on the person, also physically and emotionally taxing on, on, on the family life where you miss, you know, all these things with, with, with your kids and your family. Not, I mean, I would, nothing would make me happier than to escape my apartment right now, but I love my family. Um, so, it, I mean, is, is there any notion that we're going to go back to that at the same level that it was? Um, I, I, I think we have, especially in the executive and in the VC community, have realized the inefficiencies of that mentality in travel. So will I fly out every time there's a nice size opportunity to close a deal for a customer? Probably not. I will set up a Zoom with them. Will I fly out every time there's a problem with a customer? Probably not. I'll probably set up several Zooms with them. Will I fly out for a conference where I can meet 50 customers? where I can um, make 50 business transactions, I think those are gonna be the new bars of sort of high value travel and high value uh, uh, needs of our times in a remote workforce. Um, I think, uh, you know, one thing I love is the fact that I've had now uh, two board meetings. I'm scheduling my third board meeting now through COVID and I haven't seen a board member except for Zoom. So there's no longer the board dinners. There's no longer the in-person, you know, sweaty uh, presentations where you're going back and forth. I think the whole paradigm. Let's be clear. They're still, if you're sweating at home, they're still sweating. Yes. Good point. Good point. Uh, once again, Colorado, I, I, I have nicer weather. Um, so I do think that there's an overall paradigm change and it's going to be very interesting how that sort of uh, flushes out over the next, I think it's going to take, you know, three to five years to really understand what the new business paradigm is. I mean, uh, honestly, I, I was talking to, um, uh, just before COVID, I uh, went to handshake uh, the head of sales over at Dell. And this is Billy Scannell. He's just by far the most consummate sales guy. The whole industry knows this man. He's literally built enterprise sales and he did an elbow bump. And I asked him if he ever thinks he'll handshake again. And he said, no. And that was just as COVID was hitting. Uh, and that was such a business thing. Like we taught our kids how to, you know, literally reach in and press the flesh and sort of look somebody in the eye and have a stiff arm. Uh, that's, I think, gone. I think the, um, I mean, I think Nabil, Nabil's a big fan of the, the shaka, right? Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, that thing, obviously. Oh, yeah. Hawaii, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, there yep. you go, right? It's not, it doesn't make sense in Brooklyn. I get beat up for that. But um, the, um, I actually think my kid does it on Zoom. I think it means me too, also. Yeah, me too. Okay. Um, the, uh, I think the, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. I think my three-year-old will grow up and when she, like when she's 15 years old and I tell her that in the, you know, um, it was that we were doing shake, shake handshakes when we met someone, she's like, are you guys suicidal? Are you nuts? Yes. <laughs> we were touching somebody else's hand. Random um, people. And, I mean, and at, that, at a conference, I'd probably shake hundreds of people a day's hand, literally. It's, it's amazing that you're still, you still have the head of hair that you have. <laughs> so, so we've gone from one extreme to another, right? I mean, I, I, I used to fly about 250,000 miles a year to now. I think I've taken four flights this entire year. And those were the ones that I had to. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. have. But do you miss the social element? It's, it's sort of challenging from traveling that much to being stuck in one place and not really having that physical interaction with people. Oh, poor you, stuck in Kona. I'm not complaining. I'm just asking a question. I mean, going from one extreme to another, are you finding challenges or this is this is cool? This is the norm that we're perfectly content with. So um, as probably the only elder millennial on your podcast, uh, 
I, I'm a little bit more introverted uh, than, than, than the other generations. And, and I think um, the millennial generation, et cetera, is, is introverted. And, and there's a certain amount of calm and peace and control of your schedule and everything else. And, and I do find that. Uh, I, I miss, though, I, I literally viscerally miss uh, business development. So not just sales, but uh, synchronizing with our partners, setting goals with our partners, the dinners it takes, the commitment it takes, the relationship that you have to have set with these people to get through the hard times of business and relationship. And uh, over those last you know six or so months of COVID, that has just been, I'd say, horrible. I feel like a lot of our business partnerships and relationships are all on an Excel sheet. There, there's no, there's no uh, visceral or emotional need for us to succeed together, except what you know we can track on an Excel sheet. There's no like, you know, promise in the handshake that we're going to get through the hard times or we're going to persevere to get the first big customer, etc. Um, and and if I quantitate it, you know, as as I try to do, as I told you guys, that's just the thing I, I just miss the most. And then um, I, I miss the fact that when we get on the Zoom call. We're just going through the five or six goals that we put in place. It's not the catch up that sort of makes us want to drive and exceed and excel together. Um, and and uh, that just first and foremost, because maybe it's such a large part of my job and it's a large part of why my career has been successful. Uh, I, I do miss that. I miss that incredibly. How about productivity? I mean, it's like, you know, the, the getaway pod or just a social interaction makes you think differently are you are you finding that to be a challenge whereby we, we are on a zoom call on an agenda it's an hour-long call and guess what you've got seven others planned right after each other so we, we are zooming out i mean what what what's the boundary what's the what what's the cutoff point uh, whereby well, you're losing on that creativity for the future yeah so empirically i could show that my Managers and below are more efficient in getting more done than ever before. Empirically, I could show that the pipeline of effort, development, new products, new features uh, is smaller than it's ever been before. And what that is showing me and the leadership team is our collaboration, our creativity, our focus on problem solving has been it's never been weaker and that is an absolute detriment and it could be the thing that kills the organization. But if when we can quantify the work and we can pass it down to the people that need to actually do the work, they are more efficient. So we're looking at a, a different paradigm for the company in a post COVID world where there will be two days in the office or three days in the office. And those will be hard collaboration days with back to back meetings, the in-person needs, getting the requirements nailed down, getting that documentation. And then there'll be days that, frankly, people are protected from meetings. They're protected from Zoom calls, and they just need to focus and get the things done. So by the time we're on the next week or the next cycle, they're contributing to new stuff and new innovation. Um, and it's interesting. It's a dichotomy. We're, we're losing our creativity, but we're closing out more task business than we've ever had before. And I think that's, you know, I think that's, it's an extension of kind of the, the social disruption, right? I mean, it's, a, you, you talk about it in terms of, you know, you um, being able to establish some sort of uh, a real kind of emotional connection with your partners. And it's, you know, it's one of those environments where for the people that you have an existing relationship with, you can maintain those and to a certain extent even grow them because everyone is kind of zooming into each other's homes and, 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 and there's less formality about our relationships than there has in the past. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I've never been a particularly formal person to begin with. So, you know, the emperors all collectively have no clothes and I'm never putting on clothes again. 
it's <laughs> metaphor has gotten away from me, but you get the point. Um, I think establishing new relationships, just like establishing, you know, you know, creative applications um, and, and solutions um, are really difficult to achieve without having that kind of fundamentally in-person, um, you know, type of uh, a collaboration. And, and it's difficult. Uh, it, it's going to be something that I think a lot of companies out there, a lot of people out there have to kind of emphasize. I, I, we're still in this kind of indecisive, no light at the end of the tunnel kind of space where, you know, we're in this kind of fight or flight survival mode. And, you know, we're going to need to figure out how to create and how to, how to kind of force the hand of some of the things that we had taken for granted, like, you know, being in person. We always thought, you know, we'll always be able to see our coworker and, and going in. It's not something that we necessarily predicted, uh, maybe we should have, um, would, would impact us. And having, you know, it's, it, we have to think about a whole different, you know, set of solutions to problems that we couldn't have anticipated um, would, uh, would, would, would get to us. Yeah, I, I see it as sort of a, a next evolution of the speed of trust. You used to have this, do I like the person? Do I get along with the person? Um, you know, you set the first goal with the person and then you see if we sort of mutually achieve that. That whole paradigm has to be turned on its ear. Um, whether it's more formal or whether there's a more uh, accepted society process for it. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm damn glad I'm not a, you know, early startup right now. Uh, it would be very, very hard to pitch your wares, to get people to trust you, to get people to make that decision not before you. What advice would you give someone that's starting uh, and they're early part in their career in our space? You know, um, if, 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 I was, if I was excited and starting down the infrastructure route right now, I would look at the speed of innovation and how that you can enable organizations to not just maximize the current speed of innovation, but actually accelerate that. Uh, what I mean is, is if you just take a step back uh, with Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Badu, uh, and what they are bringing with new processors and new software, Moore's Law, which has been the defining thing in our, our space, has gone from doubling in speed and having inside in 18 months to I think that cycle is now compressed within three months and maybe even getting less because now you have the software effect driving the physical effect of, of chips and processors and hard drives. And that has created such a pace of innovation to, to just levels that literally stand the hair on the back of my neck when I think about how you apply that level of innovation to say the world's largest uh, um, processor genomics who, who I was just working with are assisted driving, full autonomous driving vehicles. Those are all being driven from sort of a concept to reality in three months, six months, nine month intervals right now because software and hardware are finally melding and you have that ability to not just be an infrastructure person, but to be an innovation person because you're combining software and infrastructure together. And it's never been a more just outright more lucrative time for people that grasp that concept for the pace of innovation to give more opportunity. Uh, and I would start dead center in understanding how do you meld software and hardware together to speed up innovation. And literally the, the entrepreneurial are, are just the ability to even work for Google uh, in that realm. It's probably the most exciting thing I can imagine these days. So as an entrepreneur, I mean, with the speed to market, the pace of innovation, the, the idea that you can bring something to the market within three to six months, what are you seeing in the VC community with funding? Um, so the VC community and funding with, uh, especially around COVID, hasn't skipped a beat. It's actually more active at higher valuations and faster processing than ever before. 
And what they are seeing is that the traditional companies are not innovating fast enough because of their own business process, their own requirements for quarterly goals. And a startup in almost any vertical doing almost anything can take the innovation of the cloud, the software development process, and the new hardware development process and redefine a business as old as a train company overnight. Um, in fact, you actually can. That's a very funny thing. Uh, literally, the traveling salesman problem, a computer wasn't even able to process that. And that's, you know, what's the most efficient way to get to six points in a particular time zone. There were too many variables. Now you could actually run that algorithm in a supercomputer in the cloud and get a response. And now you could actually retrain how to, you know, ship trains across the country. I mean, literally you can almost look at any traditional business and completely upend it. And if anything, COVID is just making that exponentially more viable from a business uh, capability because now you can process online the digitization of these companies is coming together with commoditization and you know those are the main forces that are going to drive innovation so phil and i talk about digital transformation quite a bit on this podcast i mean i've been a big advocate of digital transformation for the last decade uh, but it's been guided by the the old guard that didn't want to make the change working from home working from anywhere was not even a thought that they wanted to practice uh, whereby it's becoming more of a norm and the idea of bringing other cultures or learning from other cultures that the 40-hour week to be shortened to 30-hour week or working four days a week versus six days a week sort of a thing. Uh, do you see that becoming more of a norm as we move forward? So I, I think the old companies that are not digitally transforming, let's take uh, mortgage processors at traditional banks, they're, they're being destroyed by Rocket, which can do a complete mortgage online in 10 minutes. Um, you know, literally soup to nuts. Uh, yes. Uh, Don't feel about that. <laughs> um, it, no, and I'm just saying it, it literally, you know, the companies that are finding digital transformation where their increment cell does not have additional unit cost is absolutely destroying the, the previous companies. If you even look at the current stock market, the traditional banks are being absolutely outrun by Square and everybody else because their cost to add another customer or another unit or to do another thing of business has no incremental fees. I think when you adopt that mindset, you do adopt flexible work structures because now you're not needing the process to make another unit. You're processing the next uh, innovation. You're processing the next feature that will make a customer more sticky or add more value. And once you decouple the need for physical labor to make money, you can start looking at very unique, you know, flexible work schedules, et cetera. There's a lot of good stuff that's coming out of it. We are learning that there is a life and work balance, potentially. Potentially. Uh, For the first time in 30 years. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing in your space, in your leadership role that are not being addressed yet? For instance, are we becoming, with all these KPIs in place, are we enforcing a culture where every employee is just a number on a spreadsheet? Are we expecting them to work longer hours because they're rolling from their bed into their office space since they're working from home? What are some of those challenges that either you're seeing or you're forecasting or things? My pause is I'm not seeing as much of a challenge in that in my organization because we are in uh, and, and my field in general, because we are more uh, idea based, learning based and, and, and service based. Um, and I'd say there is a requirement in any infrastructure business to be available nearly 100 percent of the time for break fix. But as you are the, now the person, your site reliability engineers, your development engineers are the people building the product 
they want to take ownership of the product when it breaks. And there actually is a sense of pride uh, that if that is breaking too much, you didn't build it right. And they are refactoring and re reformatting that. And, and, and that is in their control. And I think for the first time, this generation that's coming up is really in control of their destiny. The, 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 the value of the product they build drives the consumer adoption of the product and the way in which they build it and the resiliency of which they build it derives their own ability to have work-life balance and everything else. And that's pride, authorship, ownership. And that's almost like being your own uh, entrepreneur within a company. And, and that's predominantly rolling out in my industry. I will say though, I am struggling very hard and I'm working with my executive leadership team, my partners, that um, there is a uh, immediacy and both the metrics that I have to drive the company, but also the metrics that my individual contributors want to be measured at. And they want their bonus paid quarterly, or they want something that shows that their contribution is really affecting the company in a near instantaneous time. But the reality, as we all know, is uh, innovation, uh, adoption, that's a long arc. Uh, so the effort you're making now may not make a significant impact to the company six, nine, 12 months down the road. And that's a real hard balance to say, you know, what is the impact of this immediacy that's driving you to work extra hours to get the goal done? And what is that actual impact to the company long-term and how can those be balanced out? And that is something that we're absolutely struggling with in the middle of uh, COVID more than anything. Uh, Cause we don't have, as you were saying, Phil, we're, we're not sitting around a table late at night, all collaborating to work to get that next thing done. Cause we know it's a major impact to the company. Instead, the individual has a task in front of them and they know if they hit that, they get their bonus. So they're going to work to that extent. And if all I do is lay on more tasks, they're going to work harder to get more tasks done to hit that next bonus type scenario. And that, that's a very cyclic uh, problem that we're having to deal with. And I, th- I look, it sounds to me um, and, and, you know, in the experience that, that, that I have that, you know, communication and, and expectation setting and, and somewhat of a, of, of a renewed focus on company culture is is really important for companies that are gonna gonna you know thrive in in this sort of time. And you almost want to make sure that you don't uh, that you kind of protect your workforce from burnout, because you know in in our world, particularly your world, that attracts you know these 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 kind of you know hot in the moment type type thinkers sometimes when when they don't have the the external disciplines the external like uh reins that that can be pulled on them they'll just spin themselves out of control because the only person in their office to talk to them is are themselves right so you almost have to make this outward kind of you or give mental health days or just say just calm down or check yourself or whatever which is kind of anathema to the way we were told that we were supposed to lead. You're supposed to motivate people to work harder. In reality, what we need to do is motivate people for longevity and motivate people to, to be able to, you know, not go completely postal on themselves and their families and, and have a recognition that, you know, when you're not working, you need to have the discipline to be able to be present for your family, as opposed to just thinking that because all of those things happen um, in the same, in the same dwelling, you're no longer driving to the office and driving back, that there is a, it's, it, you know, sometimes people don't know really how to separate themselves, uh, and until it's too late, um, you know, can't 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 make that recognition. So it's it's you know it's leadership's goal, role to kind of communicate those things and and almost have you know mental health you know um, uh, type of checks on on their employees, which sounds weird. Yeah, I think right now we need a lot of it. I, uh, with the certainly I do. 
<laughs> with the high unemployment rate, not knowing what the future is going to hold, not really having a good sense of direction from the government bodies, seeing a lot of businesses go out of business. The un- unknown is driving that whereby I, what I'm, I'm seeing and people that I've been actually talking to and, and companies that I'm engaged with is that there is that sense of fear and people are just trying to work harder without the, a sense of direction because of the unknown. That, that's a big challenge that I don't think we are thinking through or thinking about. Now, it's great yeah. to be in the space that we are in. It is. The, the, the volume of effort is no longer the measuring stick. It's really the quality uh, and the impact that people are doing. And that takes leadership to keep people focused on that and not focus on things they don't need to do so that they can find time and balance and everything else that's going on the whole right now. If, if I think there's a fir- an early decision point, are, are you committed through your cultures and values to stay in a place like uh, Hawaii? As you know, I'm, I'm very excited. It's my goal in life to move there myself. Um, and, and is and is if that's it, then I think that drives a whole remote work, remote development path that is unique. And I think when you start doing that, you start thinking about. Um, you know, networking, uh, um, and by networking, I mean actual like, you know, Cisco and, and advanced networking, software-defined networking, that can be done almost anywhere. And you can build up expertise and take classes online, and there's very good instructions. And the demand for that is far and beyond, and, and it's unrelenting. 5G is going to drive this to a whole new level. Um, we're, we're not even scraping the surface on the edge capabilities and, and that kind of stuff. Then there is the, um, am I trying to get into central infrastructure? This is going to be data centers. It's going to be large cloud computing, storage, you know, concentration. That's still going to have a level, you know, post-COVID where you, you are going to need to be in an ecosystem where you can be part of driving that and part of managing that. The learnings from that, the, the, the environment is very, very important. Um, you know, one reason, once again, I, I got to know Phil so well is just New York is such a hub for interconnections and for uh, data centers. And, and it, it, it has a certain level of gravity that you have to be a part of. And then that brings a whole level of jobs and capabilities. But I, I think that's really purely from an infrastructure standpoint. I think if you wanted the best of both worlds, I am loving the fact that I believe IoT, sort of the internet of things is finally a actual thing. Uh, whether it's sensors in a car, whether it's um, uh, location sensors and weather sensors for grapes, whether it's somebody on uh, Kauai probably working in the seed factories and trying to increase yield and predict yield. And that's going to create a whole other field of people that want to get their hands dirty with the sensors and people that want to get their mind dirty with the data. And the data is by far going to be the largest transformation of jobs. It's people that interpret data, people that massage data, people that process data. It's going to literally, and I know it's a cliche, but it is going to become the new gold as IoT, data centers, and everything sort of combined. It's going to be what do you do with this concophony of data that's hitting you to drive business value? And almost anybody with any level of business acumen uh, whether they were in hospitality and they need to surf through the data of Marriott's uh, reward program or whether they're, um, you know, in a growing coffee and they need to surf through the data of the moisture and the yield. It's going to be those people that understand data that are going to derive value. And that's going to be a sustaining job and a future job that, um, you know, is going to pay well and it's going to literally drive the next level of innovation in the whole world. I think it's an, it's an incredible point and 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 to put a uh, to put a pin on it, you know, I think that the majority of the outside world looking at our industry thinks that, you know, 
to the extent that they even know that critical infrastructure exists, they all think it's, you know, computers and, 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 and you know, kids uh, in a basement. And they all think about it as, you know, oh, that, that's something that the geeks use. And, you know, I'm not a computer person or a technology person. When in reality, the best innovations in our world have come from people from outside our industry uh, because you don't look at it as purely a technical issue. You look at it as, you know, trying to solve a problem that you know specifically in your world and leveraging uh, technology to be able to solve it. Our generation, to a certain extent, certainly the generations uh, before us, I'm not going to put myself in the same generation with you. Yes, you're younger than I am. I think the world needs to know that Luke Norris is younger slightly than me, although inside he's an old man uh, because he's at 14 14 jobs already. Um, And, you know, I, I think that the older generation that is, you know, kind of fearful of technology because they weren't there when it was, you know, kind of as preeminent as, as it is today, will will sort of um, uh, uh, convert to the current generation that cannot escape technology at all. You know, my kids are on Zoom calls right this second in the same place where we're on a Zoom call going to school or whatever. There's telehealth, telemedicine. All of those things are everyone is a technologist because everyone has, you know, essentially what what was our the old generation supercomputer in their pocket. Um, so it's just, nobody is devolved from it. There is no vertical that isn't, um, you know, can be, you know, technologically, you know, manipulated or, 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 or levered. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it, people need to stop thinking of themselves as either a technologist or not a technologist and start looking at technology as, you know, an enablement platform for the next version of whatever world they're comfortable in. Although I'm struggling to find a way for uh, a technologist to come out of someone that owns a small shave ice stand on, uh, on, on the corner road in Kona. I was just going to say that uh, this is actually a good opportunity to enforce the fact that we are in a data rush whereby people that are not in our space have an opportunity to potentially bring experiences, exposure, education to better other parts of uh, the life. So whether it be traveling, for instance, or it be real estate, Bill, your, your experience with closing on your house, for instance, could be something that could be leveraged by those folks or those experiences could be brought forth. It's too, too painful. So... Being a technologist and a futurist, Luke, being in the space, uh, we see many science fiction movies presenting a dark future. COVID-19 has kind of sort of put us into that uh, immediate hardship. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future? Do you see it to be a dark future, a bright future? And if so, what are some of the areas that you think are going to change our life? Uh, so once again, I try to be uh, an optimist and I try to look at the problems of the future <laughs> in ways we can solve them in, in bite-sized chunks, back to my sort of mantra. Um, uh, I fear that COVID has only accelerated the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And I don't mean that just from an economic standpoint, uh, from the knowledge worker jobs, or the service worker jobs, but to the big businesses versus the small businesses. It is going to be harder to get these things uh, across the line. Um, It's gonna be harder to get innovation pushed through and big businesses are gonna have uh, oversized effect in that. Um, I also believe that um, we are gonna reach a level in the next five, 10 years max 
where AI, ML, and computer-generated um, capabilities are going to impact our lives so greatly and positively that we're going to have to relook at the fundamentals of economy, and a bit, especially a service-based economy. Uh, when you could have, as you mentioned, Phil, a shaved ice, when you can have a shaved ice delivered via an app uh, that's perfectly temperatured and, and controlled and right brought to your door, whether you're in Kona or Colorado, uh, by a robot, uh, that is going to displace certain levels of jobs. Uh, Uber jobs are obviously going to be displaced by autonomous driving. Healthcare jobs are going to be displaced by telehealth. But all those are fundamentally enhancements to the underlying quality of life, but that will dramatically, dramatically change the underlining and the underpinning of many economies across the world, especially America's. And we are all fundamentally going to have to relook at that, whether it's you know, some sort of universal healthcare system, a universal income system. Uh, those are inevitabilities that we have to tackle. They're not easy. They are inevitabilities that we're going to have to tackle as we also tackle the mass, mass change we're going to go through as a society with everything that machine learning, AI, ML, and, and, and robots are going to bring to market. And uh, to be honest, um, that's one of the reasons I'm teaching my kids to code. It's one of the reasons I teach my kid you know, critical infrastructure is I think that these are going to be those core jobs that drive the underlining uh, value proposition and the new underpinning of the economies. And uh, I, like I said, I've never been more proud and more uh, excited for what the future entails and what our industry is going to provide that future. Yeah, I'd like to take this opportunity and encourage people to start looking at it, not necessarily a career change, but start thinking like technologists in the futurist and start educating themselves. I think those are, I mean, look, it'd be difficult for me to find more appropriate words that to end on. I know I know, we need to, to, to wrap up, but, you know, are there any, um, understanding that our, um, our audience is, um, you know, these, these uh, the kind of next generation, you know, people that are trying to understand, you know, our world. Um, again, I think you put a pin in it uh, brilliantly, but if you, uh, if you have any final thoughts, this is, this is the time um, to, uh, to let them out there and, and have that final knowledge drop. This is, this yeah, is the last bite-sized bit of your <laughs> elephant. I, I guess I'd just like to sink some teeth into that. I, I have seen in the last year, um, the world's largest genomic processor that is matching genome sequences to cancer drugs and to COVID take a month to process 30,000 genomes, so 30,000 people. And this is sort of before you release it to actual testing on individuals. And, and it would take a month with a very large amount of infrastructure in the cloud. Well, we've been able to prove out and help two organizations do what they did in a month at the same cost they can now do it within five days. Now, that is a dramatic, dramatic change in the pace of innovation, the pace of delivery, and the impact overall in human health and society. Uh, autonomous driving. I've seen every major uh, manufacturer uh, vehicles dive into autonomous driving and just the label imaging, so the label what a stop sign is, the label what it is, used to take, I kid you not, 50,000 people in other countries at low-end labor. And now the machines are so good that the machines are training machines and now they don't need the 50,000 people at low labor. They can actually process themselves and the training of those models went from a year to get to about 7% effective to a month to get to 75% effective, which is what you need to go into class three and class four sort of autonomous driving. Uh, I, I'm seeing literally uh, cancer research institutes that are sharing 
their research off of common storage because it's the unique way in which they're processing it and their hypothesis. So there's so much innovation that is impacting society at its very roots, its very cores right now. Um, and our ability to impact that, to make that innovation change, to actually feel like you're actually moving society forward has absolutely positively never been more prevalent than it is this very second. And I only see an exponential future for that. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.